You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Good morning, good morning. Welcome, welcome. Hello, hello. So glad to uh, be seen by all of you there on our QCC live stream service. Welcome, welcome. Uh, As most of you know, we have uh, people in our close proximity, sort of in our orbit. We have um, begun to see some infections and with the spike, of course, we felt like what we would do was go back to live streaming here for several weeks, wait and see how it all works out, rather be safe than to uh, help anyone get infected. So that's, um, that's what we're doing. We're so grateful to be here, though, by live stream. Andy and Ethan, great job. Thank you so much. Feels good in here. Feel good in here. We do have some people there on the third row who showed up anyway. God bless you. Glad to have you. It's awesome. Awesome, awesome. I wondered who would do that, quite honestly, and now I know. Thank you for being here. Um, we're going to continue to live stream until further notice. Like I mentioned earlier, we will just check it from week to week. Um, we're going to receive our offerings this morning. If you would like to give, you can do so from your phone. Text QCC Giving to 77977 and follow the prompts, or you can go to our website, which is queencity.church, select giving, and also follow the prompts. And once again, I've mentioned this over the weeks and months. We're so grateful for the continued uh, financial support here throughout the COVID pandemic, and your generosity has truly been amazing. One thing I wanted to do was I wanted us to take a moment and pray about the pandemic. I think that um, there's so many things going on in the nation that this has triggered, but I believe we should all join together and actually pray against the virus spreading. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray now against the spreading of the virus Lord, we pray uh, the same prayers that Paul prayed, that we might live in peace, that we might have a peaceable land. Father, we pray for, um, for justice. We pray for the power of your spirit to touch lives throughout our nation. Lord, we pray for people to um, uh, come out from under uh, all the fear and all the apprehension. Uh, we ask that you would release, Lord, your kindness, your goodness, Lord, let your kingdom come in ways of peace, generosity, and hope. But we thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that none of this has taken you by surprise and that uh, you are more than capable of not just carrying us through but causing us to be more than conquerors. And so we put our trust in you this morning, and we thank you so, so much. Amen. Amen. Well, what I've been studying recently uh, has been the uh, 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And in that Gospel, uh, we find uh, three different parables. 
and the parables talk about lost things or lost sheep or lost people. And we uh, looked last week at the first two, and I'm going to um, talk a little bit more about those as we go through this. Um, so when you're reading in Luke chapter 15, you have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of a lost coin, and then one that's called the prodigal son. But one of the things I want us to note and really, really understand that the purpose of these parables provide a stark contrast between the religion of Jesus' day and the kingdom of God that Jesus came to institute and compares the difference in Jesus' worldview and the Pharisees' and scribes' worldview, which was constantly at odds. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I'm going to talk about, then we're going to talk about it, then we might talk about it further, but let's look at this. I want to look at Jesus' attitudes and actions reflect our Heavenly Father's heart. Let me say that again. When you read these parables and you understand the implications and you see what Jesus is talking about, the attitudes and actions reflect our Heavenly Father's heart, His perspective. And we're going to see that that perspective is redemptive, it's joyful, it's celebratory, it's kind, it's confident, it's loving, and as we'll see in the uh, story of the prodigal son, his attitude is pleading for reconciliation and willing to suffer shame to heal relationships. And so um, you can see all of these in these in these three parables, but you also begin to identify attitudes that the Pharisees have. Uh, they're they're angry. They're envious. Actually, um, even Pilate understood that it was for envy, it was for jealousy, that Jesus was betrayed by the uh, the religious leadership. Uh, they're critical. They're debating, they're argumentative, and they're looking for flaws. And I recently, a couple of weeks ago, I started thinking about this, but uh, um, I've had probably five specific older men in my life I would consider spiritual fathers, and three of them um, have already passed away. And one of them was Bob Jones, and... Um, he would identify the five characteristics of bad religion. He would call it legalism, opinion, debate, judgment, and criticism. And so I think that's worth noting. Those are characteristics of people more involved in religion than, in, let's say, than, than the kingdom. And um, so when we look at Luke 15 and we understand Jesus has told these three parables, the question is, what precipitated Jesus telling these? Why did he do this? And so I want to quote from Luke 15, 1 and 2 from a new translation I've discovered called the Mirror, M-I-R-R-O-R, the Mirror Translation that really sets the stage. I'd never heard about that. Anybody out there ever heard of the Mirror Translation? Yeah, it was really, really interesting. Here's what the Mirror Translation says. Uh, now, all the people of reputation, the infamous tax collectors, as well as your regular sinners, were in the habit of crowding Jesus. They were magnetically drawn to him, addicted to his conversation. 
But the Pharisees and law professors were, hear this, furiously complaining about the warm hospitality with which Jesus embraced these people in their frequent banquets. The constant murmuring of the professional religious leaders inspired this story. So actually those are the first three verses of Luke 15 in the mirror translation. Then I wanted us just to look at it again from the Passion Translation, those first three verses. And I like different translations because how many of you read the Bible so much sometimes you read right over it? You don't get the full benefit. And so uh, I'm a new King James man. That's my... That's my translation um, of down over the ages. But I certainly have enjoyed this mirror translation. I've also, of course, enjoyed the Passion Translation. But here's what the Passion Translation says. Dishonest tax collectors and other notorious sinners often gathered around to listen as Jesus taught the people. This raised concerns with the Jewish religious leaders and experts of the law. Indignant, they grumbled and complained saying, look at how this man associates with all these notorious sinners and welcomes them all to come to him. In response, Jesus gave them this illustration. So Jesus specifically told these stories aimed at the Pharisees. Now, here's the problem. We have to think through this. In this story, are we Jesus? Um. Are we the object, the subject of each parable, or are we a Pharisee? And I I hate to say this, but in my life, I've been all three at one point or another. I remember James Scott a couple of weeks ago, one of the parables uh, he had, and and he asked, um, are you always David or sometimes are you Saul? And I think, quite frankly, we would get more benefit out of the Bible if we took the posture of the person being corrected than the person who was always in the right. You know, are you David or sometimes are we Goliath? Oh, that doesn't work, but you know what I'm saying? It's ha. So Jesus told these stories to contrast the heart of God with the opinions and practices of the constantly murmuring professional re- religious leaders. Okay, the first parable is about the lost lamb. And in that parable, Jesus tells us that a shepherd with a 100 lambs loses one of them. The shepherd left the 99 and pursued the one. Well, religious leaders in that historic period despised the occupation of shepherding. And they certainly weren't interested in pursuing lost sheep or especially the kind of people that gladly gathered around Jesus. And here's that description again from those two translations. Dishonest tax collectors and notorious sinners or infamous tax collectors and regular sinners. So you can be a notorious sinner, you can be a regular sinner. Nevertheless, Jesus' parable challenged the Pharisees that they should pursue just such people, and he emphasized their value in that in Jesus' parable, the shepherd left the 99 sheep at risk to recover the single lost one. And um, I've often thought, and, and I've, I've said this before, that would be a very poor business decision to have 99 healthy sheep and one leaves and you leave the 99 to go find the one. But that gives you an idea of the heart of God. Um, 
Jesus also emphasized the celebration over recovering the lost sheep, indicating that all heaven rejoices more over one repentant person than over 99 who needed no repentance. That was who Jesus knew his father to be. And I've marveled that in all three of these parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the role that celebration and partying and enjoying um, the redemption of someone the role that that plays is really, really interesting. Jesus would mention this over and over. And we also saw that in one of these translations, it talked about Jesus attending these banquets, which they were constantly having. So, you know, it's amazing. Jesus was not afraid um, to go right into these parties that um, tax collectors and notorious or regular sinners were having. So... Um, well, I like that idea about the celebration. I like that idea about heaven rejoicing more over one repentant person than over 99 who needed no repentance. And another point that that mirror translation mentions is that when it talks about a repentant person, it's actually talking about a person who comes back to their original intent, their original purpose who they really are. And so there's an element of repentance that involves coming into exactly who God created you to be. And so when I'm looking at this first parable, um, I've noticed different characteristics, different characteristics of God that he demonstrated in this parable. One of them is this loving perseverance. Um, verses 4 and 5 in Luke 15 says that the shepherd searched in the wilderness for that one lost lamb and did not stop until he found it. Another characteristic, I've been going to mention this, is joy and kindness, just the kindness of God. Actually, um, in some of the epistles of Paul, he identifies kindness as an apostolic virtue. How many of you realize that we have a huge kindness deficit in the world today? Well, that's one of the primary aspect uh, characteristics of who God is. He's kind. The Bible says he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The Bible says he's kind to the ungrateful and the unthankful. And I think we really, really need to remember that. So here's the question. Who are we in the parable? Are we the shepherd? Are we the lost sheep? Are we the Pharisee that needs correction? And like I mentioned before, at different times I find myself or have found myself to be each one. And I think sometimes you can find yourself to be each one all at once. So, Lord, help us help us pay attention here to what you're saying to us through these parables. But I call that the Jesus challenge. That's the Jesus challenge for all of us. Okay, we talked about the second parable, and it describes a woman who had ten valuable coins. One, although in her house, was nevertheless lost. So she swept her entire house, diligently searching every corner of her house for that one lost coin. And it it just can't be lost on us, um, the words of Jesus, as what he's doing is describing his heart for people, and he's describing God's heart for people that in in the case of that lost lamb, it says he searched the wilderness 
until he found that lamb. And when we see this about the lost coin, the woman searched every part of the house, it says, the entire house, every corner of that house for that one lost coin. And one of the things that um, the Lord uh, had showed me years ago was that the coin was just as valuable lost as it was found. And I think one of the ideas we have is that uh, when we're saved and Jesus saves us, he, he provides us with our value because we don't have any until he finds us, and that's simply not true. I think the price that Jesus paid for us, but what he was willing to do for us indicates our value. It begins to, to define for us our value. So in that second parable, she swept her whole house, diligently searching every corner. And um, another thing Jesus did in this parable is he used a woman as a picture of what God was like, and that was also very offensive to the scribes and the Pharisees because of their low view of women. And um, so in both of these situations, Jesus picked something that was offensive to, to the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, once again, in the parable of the lost coin, Jesus emphasized the value of the individual. Every person is of infinite value to God, whether lost or found. And I like, too, his emphasis on the great joy and celebration, um, that the restoration of both that lamb and that coin elicited, provoked, stimulated, and prompted both parables in the heart of God, in the heavenly realm, and among the angels. So God values people. God is in pursuit of every single person. He celebrates their return, and he does so gladly. I read recently that the term lost implies ownership. Let me say that again. The term lost implies ownership. You cannot be lost unless you belong. And in both of these first two parables, belonging or ownership is assumed. The lost lamb belonged to the shepherd's flock, and the lost coin was in possession of the woman of the house. And I think what we need to to realize is God looks at us as belonging to him in a very real way. Okay, now we're going to look at the third parable, the parable of the prodigal son. By the way, it's much easier to preach when there are more people looking at you. But this is still good. Man, the Word of God is rich, though, isn't it? You think it's rich? So full. Lord, open it up to us. Steve Wilbur used to say that the Word of God is like Jello. Um, it's like congealed spirit that gives its um, gives its flavor to you when it's in a warm devotional heart. So, Lord, let our hearts be warm and let this word give us its strength. Okay, the parable of the prodigal son, which is the third one, and we're not going to get into all of this today. But I want to give I want us to look at certain aspects of it. But the parable of the prodigal son is also known as the parable of the two brothers, the parable of the lost son, 
the parable of the loving father or the parable of the forgiving father. But prodigal means wastefully extravagant. So some have actually called this parable the parable of the prodigal father. Because when you read the parable, you discover that the boy's father was so willing to spend almost foolishly all he had to see both of his sons truly redeemed and truly come into who they were called to be. And so I've got a little Wikipedia summary of this um, parable I want to read. Then we'll go take a look at some of the particulars. But in the story, a father has two sons. The younger son asks for his inheritance from his father who grants his son's request. Actually, the scripture tells us that he divided his inheritance up between both of his sons. Sometimes that loss that the older brother got his portion too. The younger son, however, is prodigal. He's wasteful. He's extravagant, thus squandering his fortune and eventually becoming destitute. As a consequence, he now must return home empty-handed and intends to beg his father to accept him back as a servant. To the son's surprise, he's not scorned by his father, but is welcomed back with celebration and a welcome, welcoming party. Envious, the older son refuses to participate in the festivities, and the father tells the older son, My dear child, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. To now have our minds flooded with merriness and exceeding joy is fitting because your own brother was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So we see here that the primary issue the older son seemed to have was a jealousy or an envy. Um, and I believe he too had the disease of the Pharisees. But I wanted to make some of these points that I think really graphically demonstrate us to us the heart of God. The first one is this. For the younger son to ask for his inheritance prematurely is equal to saying to your father, I wish you were already dead. And, and the incredible thing was the father was willing to embrace the shame and his younger son's rejection to provide him with an opportunity for the son to discover his ultimate acceptance, to discover that he was more than a slave, he was more than a child, but that he was a son of a loving father. And what we see here is that son fell as far as he could from both his upbringing and his culture. He lost all his inheritance. You know, I had always heard that that younger son had been eating pig's food, but if you read the Scripture closely, it says they wouldn't even give him pig's food. That's how terrible a situation he was in. Um, so a Jew could fall no farther than raising pigs or e even eating the food that pigs eat. Um, there could be no more demeaning experience for a young Jewish man. They didn't raise pigs. Pork was um, against the Jewish law to, to eat. The next thing we see that his father saw him coming, uh, in, in verse um, 20, it says, so the young son set off for home from a long distance away. His father saw him coming dressed as a beggar. And I wanted to read right out of, um, right out of uh, 
this gospel some things that really, really touched me. Uh, I want to go back to um, the younger son and the condition he found himself in. It says, a farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. The son was so famished, he was willing to even eat the slop given to the pigs because no one would feed him a thing. Actually, one translation says they wouldn't even let him have what the pigs ate. Um, Verse 17 of Luke 15 says, Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing, and he thought, There are many workers at my father's house who have all the food they want with plenty to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? So the Bible says he came to himself. Another translation says he came to his senses. And here's the thing I want to say. When people really come to their senses, they realize they can go home. When people really come back to their real, true self, they realize they have a place they can go. They can go back to the father's house. And so that's that's what the kid, the child, the son said in verse 18. I want to go back home to my father's house. As I was reading this, this really struck me. I want to go back home to my father's house. I don't know this morning who's listening to this or who's watching this, but let, let me assure you, you can go home. There's a place for you. You really can go home. You can go back to your father's house. That's what this young son said. I want to go back home to my father's house. To me, that means so much. There's a place for all of us in our father's house, in his heart. And then the younger son said, and I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to be called your son. Please, Father, just treat me like one of your employees. And so the younger son had rehearsed this repentance. It's basically what he did. So the young son set off for home. And then here's another verse that really touched me. From a long distance away, his father saw him coming. From a long distance away, his father saw him coming. And what this tells us is his father was looking for him. And the thing, the thing that's amazing to me is, and, you know, maybe we don't like this, but it's just part of what the story is. Some people have to go through some things they don't want to go through for them to realize what God's heart for them really is. How many of you can hear that? I mean, you, you hate to see people go through what this young man did when he left. But the truth is, He can go home. His father was not only waiting for him, he was looking for him from a long distance away. But there's something that has to happen for people. People's hearts have to turn. You know, you can't make people turn to God. I know in raising kids, you want to do everything you can for your child to to love God. But you can't make them. See, God will let people make mistakes. God will let people go the wrong way. And, and I don't know, maybe he'll put things in, his, in their way to convince them not to. But at the end of the day, this relationship with God has got to be real. It can't be forced. 
it can't be legally imposed. I mean, I think that's, um, that's one of the reasons both, as we'll see later, the older brother had such trouble relating to his father, and it's the reason the Pharisees had so much trouble with Jesus. To, to have a true connection with God, you have to come to it yourself. It can't be imposed. You can't be condemned into it. You can't be threatened into it. It's got to come from a willing heart. But this shows you the heart God has. From a long distance away, his father saw him coming, dressed as a beggar, and great compassion swelled up in his father's heart for his son who was returning home. So the father raced out to meet him. He swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly, and kissed him over and over with tender love. And then the son's going, okay, now I've got this speech. He's getting ready to crank this speech out to at least get what the servants were getting. So he says, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I could never deserve to be called your son. Just let me, but boom, the father interrupts him and says, son, you're home now. You're home now. And so this whole idea of a scripted sinner's prayer repentance is not really what God's after. He's after your heart. He's after your your ability to recognize where you're wrong or where you're off or where you're not living up to your full potential or where you've compromised and make a turn. And the minute you make the turn, God is right there, right there. He says, son, you're home now. Man, he turns to his servants and he says, quick, bring me my very own best robe and put it on him. Bring the ring, the seal of sonship, and put it on his finger. Bring out the best shoe that you can find for my son. Let's prepare a great feast and celebrate. For this, my beloved son of mine, was once dead, but now he's alive again. Once he was lost, but now he is found, and everyone celebrated with overflowing joy. It really struck me there where Jesus says, in a certain way, when you have left the purposes of God, when you have gone your own way, when, when you have turned away from the Lord, J- Jesus described that as a kind of death. Maybe not an ultimate death, but living beneath um, your calling, living beneath uh, the purpose that God has for your life. But when he turned, he would, his father would say he was once dead, but now he's alive again. Once he was lost, but now he's found. And then, of course, as we know, the older son wouldn't, didn't want to have anything to do with joining in the celebration. I think maybe we're going to talk about that a little bit more at another time, but I've read several things that, that have greatly interested me, interested me. Um, actually, when you read the rest of this, uh, a parable, the father throws this celebration for his son and his older brother would not even come in. Now in that culture, it was the older brother's responsibility to co-host anything the father had like that. And 
it was a very shameful thing for the father to have to go out to his, um, the older brother and plead with him to come in and join. And in his culture, he would have, it was a shameful thing for him to have to do that. And there's another thing I, I saw that was, that was very powerful. We, we see that from a long distance away, his father saw him coming and he took off running towards his son. And as I've been studying this, we find out that it was a humiliating thing for an older Jewish man to run, to hike up his robes, and to expose his bare legs. Nevertheless, that's exactly what he did. He shamed himself to help recover his son. And there's a reason he ran out to meet him. There's a reason he was watching for him because uh, the author... Kenneth Bailey in The Cross and the Prodigal explains that if a Jewish son lost his inheritance among Gentiles and then returned home, the community would perform a ceremony called Kizazah, K-E-Z-A-Z-A-H. They would perform this ceremony called Kizazah. And what they would do was that if a Jewish man left the community, if he went and lived with Gentiles, if he lost his wealth when he came back, when he would come to the city gates after having lost his wealth, the city elders would confront him at the city gates. They would throw down a pot in front of the young man, symbolizing that the broken relationship that now existed excluded him from the community. That's why his father ran to meet him. He wanted to beat those people who would further further shame shame his son. So, several things. What's Jesus like? He's redemptive. He's joyful. He's celebratory. He's kind. He's confident. He's loving. He's pleading for reconciliation, and he's willing to suffer shame to heal relationships. One of the most shameful things that ever happened in the world was the crucifixion of Jesus. And that's the exact thing he was willing to do to redeem us. He was willing to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. He was willing to bear our shame so that we wouldn't have to bear it. Anyway, that's a little bit of a a teaching this morning on those three parables. Maybe we'll continue some of that next week. But anyway, why don't we why don't we pray? All of you at home, please stand up. <laughs> no, you don't really have to. Father, we asked this morning um that the truth of the gospel would penetrate us. Lord, we ask that um, with everything going on, we would grow closer to you. We would embody who you are. We would be like you. Lord, we have a long way to go in some ways, but we're asking for that, Lord. We're asking that um, 
you would do something new in our nation. Lord, you would do something redemptive again in our nation. Lord, you would bring people together. You would heal brokenhearted people. You would restore confidence and justice. And Father, we pray that um, you would do all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we do love you. We do thank you. Uh, you. You're so good to us. Cause us, Lord, to be ever mindful of your goodness. Lord, increase our faith. Increase our trust as we just look to you and lean to you. Father, bless Queen City Church. Bless the city of Charlotte. I live in Fort Mill. Bless Fort Mill. Bless the two states. Bless our nation. And thank you so much for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.